So good morning. It's a little bit after eight, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, um, I'm not Keith. Uh, Keith is Keith is not here and uh, asked me to introduce our speaker for this morning. So I'm Norm Berman. I'm one of the pediatric cardiologists here, uh, and so is Dave. Uh, so Dave is a, a pediatric cardiologist based in southern New Hampshire and the seacoast. Um, he uh, grew up in Salt Lake City and then uh, came east to... Uh, go do his undergraduate at Harvard and um, then did stayed east and did his uh, no went back west to do his medical school at University of Utah where he grew up came back east again to do his residency in pediatrics at Maine Medical Center and uh, then went halfway back to the Midwest to do his pediatric cardiology fellowship in Cincinnati um, following in my footsteps of course <laughs> Um, and has then uh, has been back here uh, practicing pediatric cardiology for the last with with Chad for the last four years, and so Dave is going to talk to us today about uh, the uses of echo in pediatrics, and um, and we'll make this an engaging talk with everybody's iPhones. So, thanks, Dave. Thank you, Norm. All right, so I like to do things a little differently sometimes. I don't, I've only been to a couple of these up here, so I don't know how they usually work. I often wander, um, and as you will see, I like to make sure that I understand who you are, kind of where you're coming from, and I like to sort of break the molds. I don't like to just stand up here and talk. I hate it when I'm the only one talking. Unfortunately, in this kind of format, I think there's there has to be a bit of that. But I want to engage you guys today using this system. So if you do have any device, it should work truly on any platform, any browser. You don't have to download anything. All you do is browse to Socrative.com, which is up there. At the very top, there'll be a link to log in. Select the student. You guys are the students today. Um, and it will ask for a classroom number which is right here, big and bold, and it's also going to be throughout, uh, throughout the entire lecture, printed right up there at the top of the screen here on the left, 94PZXUMT. I didn't make that up. <laughs> Good luck. Just type it in, and once you're in, please use a pseudonym, make up some sort of fake name, whatever you want, you know, your favorite Harry Potter character or your, well, whatever, your spirit animal, extra points if you can make it a very funny pun. Um, or your Star Wars Sith Lord or, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, and before I forget, I should flip back here. If you're looking for credit, apparently you need to know this code, M6AQ. I have no idea what that means, but write it down if you need it. <laughs> All right, so the title of my talk today is, well, why can't I just order an echo? So we're going to talk a little bit um, specifically about murmurs and when would be an indication for an echo. And I have no disclosures. I don't work for Socrative. This is a free educational tool. If you like it today, great, go use it. I don't care. It's not mine. Um, I wish I was being paid by somebody to promote stuff, but I'm not. <laughs> My hopes and dreams for you, number one, this goes both ways. I hope I don't fall asleep. I hope you don't fall asleep. I also hope that this whole system doesn't fall apart because I've never used this exact audience response system, but it, it seems like it's working so, uh, so far so good. I hope we all learn something. Um, even though you're the student login, I view myself also as the student today, and I hope to be able to break some paradigms on both sides of the conversation. And certainly, I hope that we have a little bit of fun while doing all this. So the specific learning objectives are a little different from what you might have gotten in an email. I wanted to focus in, instead of on a whole set of broad topics, just really on murmurs. And to help the general audience know when to refer, um, a, a kiddo with a murmur to a cardiologist and to think about as we think about um, you know when is an echo indicated when is it not how do we decide 
rules of the day. Most of what I'm going to present today is evidence-based. Um, and again, we're both learning. I'm both student and teacher, and likewise for everyone out there. And I do want to know what you're thinking, hence the system. Please interrupt. If you have questions, I'd rather stop and address them as we go than save them to the end. Um, and just so you know, I'm not sharing any of your answers with anybody except for the getting to know you is going to be projected. All the rest will be kind of behind the scenes and anonymized. So let's begin. All right. So it looks like most people that have logged in have completed most of the work. So I think we're off and going. There's a pediatric grand rounds and a jack that haven't done any answers. Can you guys just put in something so I can see that everyone's on the same page? All right. Then we're going to end this one. We're going to go in. To the first. And I, I hope that this is very practical. So we're going to give you real life situations. So here you are, you're examining a child and you hear a heart murmur. Would you believe... And we're going to take this for, you know, face value, what it is, that it's innocent. So what do you usually do next? And here, I want to know, what is your typical practice going into this lecture? Before we even talk about any of the evidence, there's no right answer, but please select one of the following. A, nothing. B, listen again another day, and if it sticks around, think of, you know, then tell, tell the parents about it. Or C, tell the parents right out of the gate, offer some reassurance. D, tell the parents, order some tests. E, tell the parents, order some tests, and then refer to cardiology if any of those come back abnormal. F, tell the parents and refer to cardiology no matter what. I'll just skip all the tests and go straight to cardiology. G, don't tell, but just send them off to cardiology and let them deal with it. <laughs> or something else. We can see the progress. 17 people, 18. We're going to let, give you a minute to do that, and then we'll see how we did. All right. Is the last one going to ring in, or should we move on? <laughs> Okay, close enough. How do we do? All right. So here's our percentages. Just where are we starting from? So 60%. Tell the parents. So disclose it right away. Tell them, oh, it's okay. It's innocent. Great. Second would be tell the parents, maybe or some tests, and then if anything comes back abnormal, send them off to cardiology, and then something else. Who can volunteer and tell me what something else might you think about that I didn't put on the slide? I'd love to know what you're thinking. Anybody? Ah, find out if it's ever been heard before. Thank you. Any other ideas? All right. Good. Next question. These first three are just going to go together. In your own words... What is a murmur? Just type in a short answer, please. there. 
All right, so sensing some themes here, I'm going to start reading some of these out loud as you guys are typing. Abnormal heart sounds, heart sounds that are prolonged, and they're distinct from sound one and sound two. They're caused by blood flow, they're turbulence, something you hear with a stethoscope, something abnormal, something extra. Be small to large sound or soft or irregular heartbeat, abnormal sound during systole or diastole. Oh, some people getting fancy. Um, opening of the heart, turbulence, blood flow, more turbulence. <laughs> sound not usually heard in the majority of peeps. All right, I love it. Sounds, flow noises, movement of blood, just a noise, just a sound. Perfect. Just a sound. Just a sound. All right. Next question. And we'll talk about these three. How common are murmurs? What percentage of kids have them? I made this really simple. Three options. Again, uh, just a reminder here for anybody who might be joining us late or joining us online. If you want to participate in the questions, go to Socrative.com, log in under the student login, put in the classroom number, which is also at the top of the screen here, as well as on the left, the right screen. Type in a fake name, and you're off and with us. So a murmur. A murmur is just a sound, right? It is the sound of blood moving. In, in this case, a murmur is the sound of blood moving through the heart. It can be normal, it can be abnormal. So a lot of people come into our clinic with a lot of conceptions and oftentimes misconceptions about what, a, what these sounds are and what they represent. Um, but I tell every patient that comes in and every uh, parent that comes with them, a murmur is nothing more than a sound. And my job as a cardiologist is to help you figure out, well, what's the meaning of that sound? Turns out that, let's see how we did. All right, <laughs> pretty, wow, perfectly even, evenly split between 8% and 80%. So it's really interesting if you start looking through the literature, how common is a murmur? Let's ask the cardiologist, because I see at least two in the room. What would you say? C. C, what'd you say? Yeah, 80%, I always tell parents more than half. More than half, yeah. So you can find studies out there that say anywhere from less than 1%, actually, to a, at least half. And some textbooks will quote some older studies that say almost 100%. And I, from what I've heard in my experience in talking with colleagues and, uh, and such, most of us are in this category that I, I think we hear them in more than half of kids, and lots of the articles do agree that it's 70, 80, 90%. So they're super common, super common. So I found this graphic a long time ago. I don't know where I got it. I wish I had a source. But this is how I view our job, right? We get tons and tons of murmurs. It's so common. Almost every kiddo, we can hear something, some sort of sound in. And yet we're looking for sort of the needle in the haystack, something very rare, the ones where this actually has some meaning or impact um, and isn't just innocent. Um, so with that, if we're confused, how do you think the parents feel? So... You've just made a referral to a cardiologist because you just heard a new murmur in a kiddo who's otherwise healthy and asymptomatic. And you explained to the family in your typical fashion, whatever that was, and they seemed reassured. So now what? what according to the studies, roughly what percentage of parents are actually reassured? Or phrased in this way, what percentage of parents are still anxious about going into this cardiac consultation? <laughs> And you guys should be able to scroll on your own screen, too, so you can see this if I haven't given you all the options. There you go. <laughs> all right. Answers are coming in quickly. Finish up, finish up. Good. 
Give you a few more seconds, then we'll look at results. All right, seems like we're slowing down. Get them in, get them in. 32. All right, we're going to call that quits. All right. <laughs> sure seems like it. <laughs> but the, the data would suggest that it's closer to 60 to 80%. So uh, this was one such study um, that was done out of Boston. And uh, wow, that really didn't come out. I apologize for that. So let me give you some of the axes here. So this is your anxiety scale across the bottom of each of these. And each of the nine different squares represents um, uh, a different measure. All right. So low anxiety is on the left, and it's a 1. And then it goes up 2, 3, and 4. So 4 being the highest on the anxiety scale. And then, um, wow, those really come out terrible. So specific concerns that parents had are that my child's going to need surgery. That's the top left corner. Um, so yeah, on the anxiety scale, zero wasn't an option here. So they have very low anxiety. But some people did think, oh no, my kiddo just you know, had a heart murmur discovered. They have to have open heart surgery. Keep in mind, this could be their brand newborn, or this could be their 16-year-old who's been healthy and playing football, and now they're worried they might drop dead. Dropping dead is also on the list. Um, risk for future heart disease, right? Confusing, what is, what's the difference between congenital heart diseases and things that kids are at risk for with adult heart diseases? Um, lots of them are worried about having to restrict their kids. In fact, um, at least 6% of parents going into a cardiology visit have already voluntarily restricted their kids without any instruction from anyone else. Um, and you know, if, if you pull all of these studies together, about 71% have some sort of a major concern. So again, including they felt that it was a serious illness. They thought that they were at increased risk of heart problems throughout their whole life. They thought this was definitely due to a congenital heart disease, um, even when they were told it was innocent or it was due to a valve problem and that it would result in exercise restriction. Um, about half of the time, they had very specific, specific second thoughts and worries and questions that they um, brought to, to the investigators at the study. Um, all right, yeah. The things that predicted anxiety level really only boiled down to two things in, in all of these studies. Number one was level of education. Um, it was usually moms who were coming into the visits in, in most of these um, studies that were done. They were just surveys, basically. And they just pulled the parents. And um, maternal education, so less than 12 years of total school, so high school dropouts, much more likely to ha have high anxiety. And then what they call high anxiety traits. So if you come into the room with high anxiety, there's pretty much nothing you can do uh, to talk them out of that anxiety. So let's go on to the next question. What percentage of parents actually know what a murmur is going into this consultation? 0, 20, 50, 80, 100. I wonder if that's even on that screen. So there have been a couple surveys looking at this. Correct answer about 20% is also only one in five. Even if you give the explanation to them in clinic and say, this is innocent, this is a normal flow sound, it's just flow going through a normal heart, these four out of five still misunderstand what we're saying. So how about the next one? So now you're examining a neonate. You hear a murmur. What's the chance then? that a newborn less than 28 days with a murmur will actually end up having congenital heart malformation of some sort, i.e. a pathologic cause of that murmur. And this would be including, you know, we have to give a, a few descriptors. I don't want to give too many and give it away. Um, we'll include PDA in this. Um, and term infants, healthy term neonates. 
almost there. Alright. Once we pass about 32, I'm just going to plug forward. Alright, so the overwhelming majority picked one in five kiddos. The literature actually suggests something closer to 50%. So here are four sample studies. Um, that's supposed to be 1995. I can't tell the future. <laughs> I wish I could. Would have come in handy with the Powerball a few weeks back. Um, but you know, these are not terribly old studies, and they're all pretty concordant, ranging from 40 to 60% at this age group. So that does highlight um, one of the themes that we're going to touch on a couple times today, which is babies have a higher risk than others. All right, so question number seven. You are rounding. So real-life applications. You are in the newborn nursery. You're rounding with the residents. And the resident presenting the current patient says, you know, I heard a murmur this morning, and I'm a little worried about it. So how far can you trust the resident, i.e., what is their accuracy in diagnosis? There's a whole bunch of ways to assess this, but the wording here is, what's their accuracy rate? So never, ever, ever trust a trainee. <laughs> ever. Did I say ever? Ever. Oh, she's about like the last question. One in five chance that she knows what she's talking about. Half, you know, it's like pulling out a coin. She might recognize pathologic murmur. No, we got great residents. Probably 80% of them recognize. We're absolutely 100%. I can't believe you're even asking that question. You should be fired. I should stop giving this lecture. All right, we're up past 32. About 80% likely to recognize trouble. Looks like the group is skewed a little further lower on the scale, which is interesting. I'd love to hear about that. <laughs> so there's probably some anecdotes out there. So again, there's different ways to assess this. And honestly, the data is kind of all over the map. I've included a few of these. I even crossed out one that I thought had terrible inclusion that I felt like wasn't really a great study that was done in Turkey. But the other five. You can look at your sensitivity. How often do they detect something that really is there? And it ranges. Some, some of these are a little lower and a little outliers, kind of 30s to 40s. But lots of them are in the 70% range, up to 80. Specificity, so if you, uh, meaning that if it's a positive test, it's, you essentially rule it in. Um, anywhere from 50 up to nearly 100%. There's something wrong with this study, too. I maybe should have crossed it out. These numbers are very unusual to have that combination. But looking back to the question, approximately three quarters of the time, nearing 80%, um, they may get it right. So the pre thinking about pretest pop. Uh, probability from the last question. Before we know anything about the murmur, what was the chance of if you have a murmur as a newborn? It's 50%, right? So pretest probability was 50%, and then you have a medical provider sort of describe it. Well, the residents, because of their training, have now increased the likelihood of disease basically to 80%, but it's only 80%, right? Still one in five. Statistically speaking, you haven't quite nailed the diagnosis. That accuracy includes a lot of features. Um, most of these are just looking at whether or not they identified pathology versus non-pathology, not so much whether they recognized that it was a VSD or a PDA or, or identifying the specific lesion. Most of these are just looking at basically pass-fail test. Did you recognize a problem when it was there? And their accuracy is approximately 80%. So, you are the residency director, and you've been here at this lecture today, and you've just learned that as a whole, residents have poor cardiac auscultation skills, and they're missing 20% of these babies, um, or more. Um, so true, false. We'll keep this one really simple. True, false. You should recommend that residents spend a month with cardiology, spending time in their clinic, listening to murmur after murmur after murmur to get better. <coughs> Does that work? 
Get up to 32. That was my number, my mental number. 32, there we go. How did we do? Oh, we duped you. <laughs> so the correct answer was actually false. It's not been shown to be terribly effective to go spend time listening with us, which is really hard for me to say. <laughs> really hard. Okay, so there was one fairly robust study, not huge numbers, but I, I thought their methodology was fairly sound. So they tried to teach, um, they, they measured basically how well were first and second year residents um, learning the heart sounds. And they gave them some CDs, and they gave them uh, experience in the clinic, and they, they kind of teased things out. And the, the study's got a lot more to it than I can give you here, but I thought that this was probably the most telling piece of this. So in this column, or set of columns here, first years, interns, right? And then these are the senior residents. And they didn't put the p-values on here, but if you compare numbers, numbers, there are some minor changes there. But when they ran the statistics to see if any of these were statistically different, nothing panned out. Maybe that's because of their power. Yeah. What was that? Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember which of the several studies this was. I should put the tag at the bottom where they were and what I know about them because you do have to consider how good was the teacher. That certainly is a piece of it. Um, but what I do remember from the study off the top of my head was that, you know, that it was sort of a multimodality um, teaching experience. The cardiologist didn't know what he was giving the same test the how good is the cardiologist? How good is the cardiologist? We're going to get to that question. That's a great question. And what's the gold standard, right? Without, I don't know this study specifically, but I think if you go back to the question of can a resident tell pathologic from innocent, um, I, I seriously doubt that that study is accurate. Uh, and, and I'm to the residents who trained here think, but I think within a month of time of listening to murmurs, residents get quite a bit better at noticing pathology versus innocent murmurs. And end up identifying a wide split second heart sound, a click, and telling whether a murmur is from BSD or PS. No, that doesn't happen in a month. And you can learn that's a stills murmur, which is a huge thing to know in pediatrics is whether that's a stills murmur. Thank you. Um, they, uh, I actually misspoke, so thank you for reminding me. They're, they did notice that the very last line, basically, of this chart does look at innocent murmurs in particular. And what they noticed in the first year, the only change that really was significant was the increase in the ability to recognize an innocent murmur. So that was exactly sort of the, their take-home point in this message was, you know, we don't expect our learners after a very short period of listening to, you know, however many murmurs that come in in the course of one month to be able to, you know, be as good as a cardiologist and nail down every single diagnosis and get all of the myriad things in this chart correct, but recognizing innocent murmurs is one of the things that you can learn pretty quickly in that time. Um, the overall accuracy on the pathology wasn't quite as good, and their p-value came out to like 0.09 or something, which they then say, well, it reaches significance, but it's either significant or it's not, and it didn't reach significance in this study. So that's why I lumped it into not significant um, on this one. But the innocent murmurs, yes. Um, they, that was the one thing in this study that did bear out to be true. So what is effective? Uh, on the flip side, instead of spending more time listening to patient after patient after patient, which m is kind of hit and miss because you don't know what's coming in the door, what if you had a whole set of 
sounds that you knew were normal or abnormal, and you gave it to the resident, and they got to sit with their own little headphones in a quiet space and have a perfect listening opportunity and be able to play it over and over and slow it down. Sounds good. And in fact, the studies that have compared um, resonant ability to identify some of those more complex skills, identify clicks that shouldn't be there, identify the character of murmurs, identify split S2s that might be indicative of ASDs, etc. They do show an increase in their sensitivity and specificity. Specificity not so much, but definitely sensitivity. So by this measure, they were picking up more of that disease. So I think that kind of tells us maybe it should be a little bit of both. Maybe, you know, I think that there's a lot to learn hands-on and seeing the kids and evaluating them that may not be part of that study per se, but, um, you know, I, I think the two go together. It's not just listening in person and it's not just listening to a CD, but the combination may be more useful. All right. So, more real life experiences. I thought I had deleted this question, but apparently not, so we're going to go with it. You're getting sign out. You're on the wards, let's say. I don't know. We'll make up something. You're on the wards, and you're going to admit this kiddo, and we'll say they're otherwise healthy, um, but they're in with a fever, and oh, by the way, the physician in the ER heard a murmur. So, the same question we asked about the residents. How far can you trust the ER physician? Same scale, basically. Trust that they know that it's abnormal. So they say, I am worried about this murmur. And getting back to the other question, I can't remember who asked it. Um, the, from way back at the beginning, your typical practice, you ask, has anyone ever heard this before? And the answer is no. This is the first time it's ever been heard. So let's see. <laughs> That's why I was going to delete it. I felt this was a brutal slide. <laughs> so, I found one study that looked at this, right? And I told you at the beginning, this is going to be the evidence-based lecture, right? The study was in adults. They did include technically what we might include in our pediatric range up to 21, because many of us see patients up to 21 or so. Um, they included 17-year-olds through octogenarians or whatever, you know, like um, all the way up. And if the person never had a heart murmur before and they had a fever and they were being seen in the ER and that was the first time it was ever heard, 98% of all comers less than age 40, um, the murmur was proven to be innocent. So very unlikely to be pathologic in that setting. I wish that we had that for the younger kids because that may be a different thing. Um, but a lot of the way that congenital heart disease presents in little kids is with shock, cyanosis, other things going on, not fever in the ER, right? So you have to kind of think about the setting and how that's coming to pass, but it's way lower. So it's close to 0%. All right. So not to, I'm equal opportunity uh, offender. <laughs> so... I get a call now from an attending who is an outpatient, mostly a clinic-based pediatrician, and they tell me the same story. Healthy kiddo, grown, driving, doing wonderfully, and they hear a murmur for the first time. How much can I trust the pediatricians? Same numbers. According to the literature. No judgment. Is this pediatricians or all primary care providers? Um, I'm trying to remember. I can't give that away without looking at the next slide. Let me see. I'm pretty certain it was general pediatricians who I included in the two studies on the next page. Yes, general pediatricians. I only had one study that I could find that looked at family practitioners. And it was more about echo utilization and ordering which we're going to get to in a minute. Not so much about murmurs. 
themselves. All right. So remarkably, this number is the same one, if you remember back to the residence, really darn close to that. And the group was underestimating that. That's interesting. That is interesting. So let's see. General pediatricians. Again, just that group of general outpatient pediatricians. Two studies, one done in Cincinnati, actually, by Tom Kimball's group um, and Yee, and they showed a sensitivity mid-80s, specificity around 60. Another group, Haney, similar numbers, 80, 72, with an overall accuracy about three quarters. So almost identical to our residents. Or to look at the data a different way, another study didn't quite do the sensitivity specificity thing, but they took general pediatricians, they took pediatric cardiologists, and then after we listened to them all, they did murmurs to make sure that kids um, really didn't have any disease. And it's our first look at how well do cardiologists do, specifically with numbers. But um, the important column being this one right here, which is the pediatricians. Pediatricians detected a grade one, i.e. soft murmur in about a quarter of patients. Pediatric cardiologists, high, significantly higher number, 40% or so. Grade two, so a little bit louder, easily heard. Pediatricians could hear that roughly 10% of the time. Cardiologists, a little more than 10% of the time. Not terribly different. Grade three, so a really loud murmur, but one that doesn't have a thrill. They only had one of those in the group. Um, it was a smaller study. And, they both got it. Um, and then innocent venous hums, cardiologists were more likely to pick up on. Um, and pulmonary flow murmurs, which are generally considered to be benign um, in the absence of other pathology, which is the next one, um, same rate. But both the pediatricians and the cardiologists um, um, picked up some kids who even though at first glance at enrollment, they thought that they were healthy and coming in and didn't have any disease, pediatricians picked up two and cardiologists picked up 12. So if you add up all those numbers and you break down and you look through it all, the punchline of their study said that they felt that the general pediatrician in the outpatient setting missed almost a third of the murmurs once you add up all those numbers. Any murmur in this case, any murmur in this case. Yeah, some of these studies get very confusing because they, I wish that they all had the same methodology. We are comparing apples to apples, but we're not. We're like comparing apples to star fruit or something weird. <laughs> Half the time. All right, so again, equal opportunity offender. How about our specialists who are in the NICU who are listening to babies all the time and they're so good they can hear right through those oscillators. <laughs> According to the literature, though, how well do they do? How much can we trust their ears? This is kind of a silly question now that I look at it, right? Because didn't we just say the resident and the pediatrician were the same? That's a really dumb question. Who wrote that question? <laughs> This might surprise a couple of people in the audience. <laughs> There's only like one study that I, I think was one study, that head-to-head -head compared them. Uh, there's four. We're going to show you on the next slide. There's, there's four that I pulled. These were kind of, again, apples to star fruit. You know, they were, when you look at these data, um, you kind of have to tease it out of uh, a study that was designed to answer a slightly different question. Um, only one of these was truly, we took neonatologists, put them in a room with kids with unknown murmurs. We took cardiologists, put them in a room. The study was done in Turkey. I have no idea how the system in Turkey works, you know, their medical education system, how many years of college or med school or what their training is for auscultation. I have no idea what that was. Um, so I had to include three others to kind of get a sense for how well these all fit together. And when looking at neonatologists, the sensitivity and specificity um, for the first three, which was kind of had more details and, and were um, 
sort of spread across the globe. Sensitivity was, again, near 80%, 70 to 80%. Specificity, again, wider range, but seemed like closer to 90, frankly, for the studies that I trusted with an accuracy in the 80s. So similar to what we've seen before, um, I believe it was this last one where um, they said, wow, neonatologists are fabulous, and they get it right every single time, basically. They're nearly the same as cardiologists. Um, but they had some difficulties with their study and inclusion criteria, criteria which I won't bore you with, but I think that it made their data a little less reliable. So the next question. You have this baby with a new murmur, and you've referred them to me or one of my colleagues, and the cardiologist now says, I am certain this child has an innocent murmur. I'm not going to do the echo. Right? I'm sure this all happened to all of you. You send them off thinking they're going to get an echo, and they didn't, and they come back to you. And you're like, oh, but this was the one I told the family. I thought this was really something, and they are certain this was innocent. So how far can you trust the cardiologist? Again, equal opportunity offender. <laughs> and for this one, I'm going to bring back some of those numbers so you can compare side, to side by side. All right, we're up to 31. Get another vote in, and then we'll show answers. There we go. <laughs> I'd love to say that we are worlds above and beyond. And I have to explain this slide a little bit, because this is a little different. So again, pulling some of those numbers from the previous slides for the first three lines. We have the trainees, the pediatricians, the neonatologists. And then I added the next line, which is the cardiologist. Our sensitivity is a little higher, right? So we're catching more of these because we're hearing more of these murmurs. We saw that on a previous slide, right? We're catching that extra 30% the pediatricians might not be hearing. So we might be hearing more than one sound, hearing something a little better. Our specificity is, um, for the most part, the highest at the top end of the range, 95% for many of the numbers that we've been seeing today. Um, so those numbers look a little bit better. Several of the studies, though, will include sort of the next layer. And this is where it gets a little harder to follow, but let me try and explain as best I can. So in our office, we have additional tests available to us, EKGs, and we can send them off for a chest x-ray if we wanted, and we can get an echo right away, right? Like, I would imagine this is probably a lot harder for you guys to get an echo only than for me to go, oh, you know, this one just sounds a little funny. And I run over to the, our, one of our sonographers, right? And we just say, hey, can you just add this one on really quick? We do that all the time. So it's really easy for us. So we, our situation is a little different. So if you throw in some sort of measure of confidence and account for those other factors of, you know, maybe we can get the test a little bit easier. Um, and then you ask, the, for example, the cardiologist, you listen to the kiddo, you don't give them any studies, and you say, what's the diagnosis? Is this innocent? Is this pathologic? And they have to write it down on a piece of paper. And they'll say, you know, this is definitely innocent. And then you hand them an EKG, and you say, does this change your answer at all? And then they have the opportunity to change. And then they go off and get their echo. And then you compare, and you say, well, how well did the cardiologist do? It turns out that if you add that confidence piece to it, if you are dead certain that it is innocent, your sensitivity and specificity goes to nearly 100%. They went down to the individual level. There were many providers in these studies that were able to nail it like each and every time or get really, really close, 96 to 99% of the time. Assuming that, gold is, that um, ECHO is the gold standard, however, <laughs> we're humans interpreting those two, and so we sometimes mess that up. So there's some argument there that maybe it's not 100%, but it's a lot higher if you add in that confidence value. And it goes both ways. It's not just the innocent murmurs, but it's also the pathologic ones. You know, there's times, and the sonographers can attest to this, you know, we come out of the room, we're like, oh, this is small VSD. Boom, you know, and like you can say the gradient's going to be 45, and it's going to be in this location, and we can be very specific sometimes <laughs> and, and nail it. Um, 
And so we, I, you know, I, it's, it's very self-aggrandizing. I hate doing this part, but, you know, with, with the experience that comes with being a cardiologist and listening to these murmurs over and over and having those tools available, we get pretty darn good at it. Not perfect, I would say. I don't claim to be one of the hundred, hundred people over there, but um, we do pretty well as a whole. So, next question. Then we're going to be done here pretty soon. In dollars, how much does Dartmouth charge for an echo? For complete congenital echo, and let me define that. So, first time study, you're going to um, find something abnormal, whether it's even just a PFO or a PDA, which many of us are going to blow off and say that's not really heart disease. Um, but if you find anything, how much do we bill for a complete congenital echo? Both components, both the institutionally yes all put together yep mm -hmm. and in fact we also break it down to did we do 2d did we do color did we do pulse wave doppler and all that kind of stuff all of that together what does the patient see on their bill before their insurance says now we're not paying that much <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's look at some of these numbers here. Let's scroll down. 1,500, 4,500, whoo, I wish. 2,500, 2,800, 5,000, 1,200, 2,000, too much. I love that one, 3,000, 4,000. All right. So since this was blind, I'm totally going to put my colleagues on the spot. Sonographers, what do you think your studies are worth? 28? 2,800? Any other ideas? I know. I'm not you know? Sure. I do. I, I want to know if you really know. Tell me. Uh, 1471. Oh, my goodness. You must have a newer number than I do. <laughs> that was what was said to me yesterday. Okay, there you go, because I hadn't heard that number. Mine's two years old, and it was just a, a hair less than that. All right. Do all the denials yesterday. Right, right. <laughs> good, good, good. Well, I'm glad that somebody knows. So then, I know that we're not really talking about all the rest of these studies, but just because I'm curious, how would you put the following things in order from cheapest to most expensive? And I know some of these are going to be outside of your realm of comfort and knowledge, but that's okay. I'm just curious because some of these you can just order right in Epic. Trying to be conscious of the time and wrap up here soon. That'll come on, I think, the next slide. Yeah, it's on the, the numbers are on the next slide. And again, it's billing, not actual cost to the institution or what the patient pays. All right, since we're short on time, we're going to cut this one a little bit short. We're going to see how do we do. Yes. All right. All right. So here you go. Costs of tests. And these are, like I said, two years old now because I didn't have the new numbers. But an EKG billed to the patient 146. We sometimes are lucky to get 30 bucks or 5 bucks sometimes back. That's what they are. Holters, 800 roughly. Event monitors, 1,300 roughly. Echoes, depends on the type of study. So again, remembering the question, um, congenital, once you include it all, I actually had 1916. I was thinking of the 1319. I don't know, Karen, if that's what you were thinking was the non or the, the congenital. Exactly, but the ones I saw were all follow-ups yesterday. So but yeah, most of the follow-ups, including congenital follow-ups, are all in the same ballpark. So even if you're just checking for that duct really quick, or just checking the function, or just checking a fusion, um, 
if we put on color and we do a pulse wave of anything, you get all three components added into the cost, and it roughly comes out to $1,300. So just keep that in mind. So when you say cost, you mean charge? Charge. Charge, yes. So not different than cost. I, I apologize if I mixed words there. The charge to the patient, whether or not it actually costs that much, that's what we're billing and hoping to get. And unfortunately, the way the system works, probably from cash pairs, right? Everyone else has a well, market deal. Well, then cash pairs get a 42% not okay. Yes. charge. Okay, good. I'm glad they do. Yes. All right. Let's... Oh, you know what? Depends on the level, and I forgot to grab those. I totally apologize, but it is in the range of, and correct me if you guys know anything different, um, three to $400, depending on the level and the complexity and what studies you had to interpret and other factors, but in that ballpark. So it, it falls squarely in between um, the EKG and the Holter, basically, right? It was a broad range. All right, so you've just heard a new murmur in a four-year-old, and so now you're thinking, way back to the first question, maybe I'm going to order some other tests. And now you know how much all these tests cost. Oh, you know what I didn't do? I didn't keep clicking. MRI, eight to 10,000 is the last number I heard from Boston Children's, where they do a high volume of these. <laughs> Catheterizations are all over the map. Depends on how long the case goes, exactly what you do, whether it's interventional versus just diagnostic. So this is a diagnostic cath in pediatrics, according to data from, I think, four years ago that was published. Um, and surgery is even way more variable. Um, and it really depends on a whole lot of other factors. How long were you in the ICU? And why were you there? How many trips were you on? Were you on a ventilator? Are you getting paying for the respiratory therapy and all that every single day? Or were you, you know, quick in and out ASD one night? Um, but the median cost, 92 thousand. Wow. All right. So then, back to this question. You, you're considering labs, a chest x-ray, EKG, or just sending them straight up for an echo and don't bother with the cardiologist. So which strategy is most effective and cost effective? And here there's not going to be just one right answer because I've asked that way. Which, I'll give you credit for anything that is effective. <laughs> Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about cost-effective and then wrap up here, hopefully. short on time, I'm going to jump right to it. So the three that were shown in this study to be effective overall in catching disease and not missing terrible bad disease um, was A, just for everybody. In fact, I think I have this on the next slide. Yep, there we go. These should be in the same order if I did everything right. All right, so number one, out there in different... Yeah, they are in different orders. For $72 per person, you can just send them all off to cardiology and just have them see everybody. So it's pretty cheap for us as a whole, as a population strategy, to just listen to them. Um, again, this, getting back to the previous comment, cost to the institution is what is in this slide, not the bill. Okay, so it costs us as a system very little to just do consult after consult after consult and then let us decide what to do. Um, the other strategies that were effective were um, just the suspicious murmurs. They're pretty good. The sensitivity and specificity are lower, but they're good enough. And definitely, if you get an echo on everybody, we're going to catch pretty much all the disease, and we're going to be able to tell you very confidently when there's no disease. However, the second piece to that question is, well, at what cost? So... These numbers don't, this is really, here's the incremental cost effectiveness ratio. Getting echoes on everybody, you're going to spend 158000 per case that you identify, right? 
relative to the others. And it turns out if you order a bunch of tests and then wait for something to come back in normal and then send it over, you're still not effective at catching everything or ruling stuff out, and you've spent a lot of money in the meantime. Um, there are several studies that I was hoping to get to that we're out of time for that reiterate that. There's several looking at the value of chest X-rays and EKGs and other things. Here are just two highlights. There are only a handful of conditions where it really changes your level of suspicion. ASDs with by EKG, there's some typical findings you can see and be like, oh, that kid looks like they have an ASD, and sure enough, it pans out. Chest x-rays can help in determining how much extra blood flow is going out to the lungs through the VSD, and it, you can see over-circulation on that, and it can bump you from just having a VSD to having a hemodynamically significant one, because now you have evidence of it on x-ray. That's the take-home point. I'm not going to belabor that. <laughs> Can we go back? So you would recommend B. Is that correct? Um, which one did I say on that one? Um, so A, E, and F were the correct answers, right? So I, I would probably say refer the suspicious. I think you're going to overwhelm your system, and you're going to spend a lot more money per child, per disease um, detected by any other strategy. All right, let's see. I thought this one was useful. We're just, I'm going to give you this answer. You don't necessarily have to vote. What's the chance that a cardiologist as a whole will get an echo anytime you send them um, to the office? And first question is on an infant. And the next one is, which I've already blown through, is a 10-year-old. And I'm just going to jump right to the point. This has to do with pretest probability. The percentage of kids that we pick up with true congenital heart disease rapidly increases until about two to four to maybe five years of age. Right? Half of them are going to get picked up in the first week, a little more, about 60 to 70% in the first month of life. And then it just keeps ticking up, ticking up, ticking up until about age one. You're nearing. 90 to 100%, and then it just kind of flattens out. So by far, most of the congenital heart disease that we pick up is in the younger kids. And it turns out that about, statistically, in the one study that looked at echo utilization, just under 50% of kids who are referred for murmurs end up getting echoes at two large facilities, CHOP and Atlanta. And we're going to skip that one. And to just wrap up, Number 19, how did you like today's format? No right answer. And while you do that, I'm going to put on the screen, oh yeah, here's the distribution of echoes usage, anywhere from 17% up to 85% of patients referred to murmurs. But most people are closer to that mean value of 43. Yeah, interesting. And then we skipped through that. Take home points. Murmur, again, is just a sound. They are super common, up to 80 100%, at least 50%. It's all over the map, but they're super common. By far, most are innocent, especially after age four from that chart that we just saw. Um, most trainees need more practice with their heart sounds, and a lot of that can be done with other technologies, <laughs> supplementing with their in-person practice. And most practicing physicians, too. We all need it. And the more we do, as evidenced by the cardiologist, the more you do of this, the better you get at it. And a confident, experienced cardiologist is pretty darn good at identifying innocent and pathologic murmurs. Not perfect, but we're pretty darn good. And when in doubt, I think the answer is to pick up the phone, give us a call. Um, additional testing really is not likely to be helpful prior to sending them our way. Um, we take all of that into account and will help guide you in that. And one thing I didn't really harp on, but I think is an important piece, echo only, um, while it's effective, is not at all cost effective. And if you were looking to find out more, there's some great recommendations co-authored by pretty much every group under the sun that has to do with pediatric echo just a year and a half ago to talk about when it might be appropriate to be ordering echoes. Um, especially in other, uh, this is specifically for outpatient um, settings. 
and it includes things that we didn't get to today, like chest pain, syncope, palpitations, etc. So if you're interested, take a peek. And with that, I'll wrap it up.